1: Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is giftedness. And my guest is Bill Hendricks, who is Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. So you've got the whole Hendricks Center team. Today, A- Bill, well, we're, we're pleased to have you with us. It's great to be here. And uh, our topic is giftedness, and most people will think that what that might mean is, oh, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts and 1 Corinthians and that kind of thing. But my guess is, is that that's
2: sort of right and sort of not right. So, so sort us out. Well, let's just start with the fact that whatever gifts we have uh, are always from God. And I personally wince when I hear people talk about spiritual gifts and natural gifts because that somehow creates kind of a hierarchy Mm -hmm. in people's minds. At the end of the day, I think we're talking about all the same stuff, Mm -hmm. that God has endowed human beings with actual abilities and strengths and motivations to accomplish things that he wants done. And every single person in the world has their own unique form of giftedness. But it would be fair to say that when we talk about
1: giftedness, we may be in more in a broader array of
2: categories than people tend to think about when they
1: think about the topic of spiritual gifts
2: Correct. in the Bible. Correct. Yeah. You know, in, in, in the passages in the New Testament, we have these lists of gifts, mm-hmm. and uh, none of these lists is, is identical, which should be our first clue that these lists are not exhaustive they're suggestive. Mm-hmm. It's as if Paul's saying, you know, we have a lot of kind of people in this church. Mm-hmm. We have some teachers, we have some leaders, we have some administrators, we, we have some givers, and then there's this catch-all, you know, for everybody else. And man, we have just a lot of people that love to help.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you still have to look inside an individual person to figure out how did they go about exercising the gift of administration. And so when I use the term giftedness, I'm using it in a somewhat technical way. And I guess the simple definition that I'd give is that giftedness is a set of unique core strengths and natural motivation that you instinctively use to do things that you find satisfying and productive. You know, it's not just about what you can do. It's about what you're born to do and what you, frankly, love to do.
1: Well, that's that's an interesting way to think about it. Uh, I think most people just kind of go through life and kind of try and find what works, if I can say it that way. There's not much a lot purpose of tr- or reflection, a lot of trial and, and error. error.
2: Yep, and therefore a lot of of uh, breakdown hmm. because people don't instinctively know what their gifts are, which sounds counterintuitive. Bill, you're saying if God made me this way, shouldn't I just know what I'm supposed to do? And the answer is, well, actually not, because your giftedness is so uh, natural and instinctive that when you're using it, you don't think about using it. You just use it, and it doesn't seem remarkable. And you're you're liable to say, well, anybody could do that. And you see other people using their gifts, and you think, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. But you you don't see yourself using your gifts. And unless somebody from the outside holds up a mirror and says – well, here's what you're doing and celebrates it and says, here's the value of what you're doing. It proves a bit elusive.
1: Okay. Well, that's kind of a little bit of an introduction. Why don't you tell us about the book that you've recently written and and, sure. and, how, and how in the world did you end up in the world of giftedness?
2: All right. Well, first of all, the book is called The Person Called You, Why You're Here. Why you matter and what you should do with your life, which is a fairly audacious title, I admit. <laughs> yeah, did they get that on the back spine? <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm at age 30, and uh, uh, my wife comes to me one day and says, Okay, enough. I've put you through enough schooling because um, she'd already put me through a couple master's degrees. She said, I want to stay home and have babies. You get out there and make some money. And so, you know, in politics, they call that calling the question. Uh-huh. You know, I had to make a decision. But the problem, <laughs> is, like calling the marriage, to me <laughs> exactly. The problem is, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. And people are saying to me, "Oh, Bill, but you're so bright. You went to Harvard. You got a couple master's degrees. You do anything you want." And I'm like, "Well, that may be, but I don't know what I want to do." And it was about that time that somebody introduced me to a fellow who uh, he said he's got this really unique way of helping you. Think through that career issue, and I was very skeptical because when I was in Boston, I went through a about a three three and a half day uh, workup, uh, psychological profiles, personality inventories, um, interest inventories. I even did a Rorschach ink block test. I spent, a spiritual MRI. Well, I I call it the uh, the psychological equivalent of a uh, proctology exam. You know? <laughs> I mean, they poked and prodded and. At the end of it, I had a big stack of reports, and I'm sure they were all true and accurate. I still not know what to do with my life. Uh-huh. and uh, But because of who it was that was recommending that I do this, I at least said I'd meet the guy. And so I met him out at DFW Airport. In those days, you could do that at the Admiral's Club. And he kind of sketched out the process that, that uh, he was using, and it made a lot of intuitive sense. And then he asked me, well, would you like to go through it? And I think at the time it cost like $750, and I didn't have $750. He said, well, if the money part was taken care of, would you do it? And I said, well, sure. And I found out later he just uh, – uh, he was consulting for my friend in his business. He just wrote it off into the business's uh, fee. But it was, it, was, it was really the best $750 that guy ever spent hmm. because when I got the results of this analysis, it was as if I'd been stumbling around in the pitch black room, tumbling over furniture, running into walls, and somebody just reached over and flipped on the light switch. And I suddenly went, oh my gosh, now I understand what it is I'm trying to do with my life. And I began to make choices on the basis of that ever since. And, and uh, I got into a lot of communication projects, writing ventures, publishing ventures, video. Uh, and the, the guy who had developed this process, was trying to get a book written on the subject of giftedness, hmm. and uh, he he was having trouble getting his manuscripts published. So he finally cried, Uncle, and let me get in there and help him. And uh, it was working on that project, I, I just realized how taken I am with this whole phenomenon of human giftedness. Hmm. And, and so I reinvented my consulting practice around that, and that's really what I've been doing for the last 20 years. So you're saying that giftedness is kind of a
1: combination of kind of what you do well and what your passions are, which I think is interesting. I imagine the passion part of this is the part that oftentimes gets stuffed or shunted to the side because people just want to land – I've got to have a
2: job. I've got to right. do something. Is that – Common. Well, let me put a quarter twist on that. Okay. I actually never use the word passion. Okay. I find that passion is a bit of a red herring, you know, because some people are what I would call passionate people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're passionate about their work, they're passionate about their family, they're passionate about their faith, they're passionate about their sports teams. I mean, they're just passionate people. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the vast majority of people have a much narrower bandwidth emotionally. Mm-hmm. They don't have high highs, they don't have low lows. I've had no end of men particularly call me up and say, Bill, I need to come see you. Um, everybody tells me I need to you know, follow my passion, but I don't know what I'm passionate about. Well I, don't, I, I believe passion is an emotional response to something that engages you. It could be high, could not. But everybody has this phenomenon of motivation, mm-hmm. something that drives their behavior. Hmm. And giftedness is really a combination of ability. And motivation—you got to have both. You know, you you can uh, you can be motivated to sing in the opera, you know. But the problem is, you don't have the ability. You know, you you sing in the yeah, shower. Don't but... go there with me. <laughs> <laughs> and then conversely, you can have a you can have an ability that's actually quite profound, and yet not have any motivation for it. Hmm. And uh, but when you put those two together, you get. Um, Certainly, what we might call spectacular uh, m- uh, performance, and and there's a, the person's heart is in the task because they love doing it. There's a satisfaction. There's a satisfaction. satisfaction. The telltale sign that one's giftedness is involved in an activity is that they enjoy that activity. They gain energy from it, mm-hmm. and it doesn't even seem like work to them. Hmm. So, um, so tell us a little bit about uh, about what. Uh,
1: the search for giftedness might involve what? So, let's assume. Well, uh, put on your imagine, imaginary hat. I walk okay. in and I'm 25. Okay, right. all right. So we've gone into the time machine, and uh, uh, and I say to you, uh, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. What 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 happens from that moment?
2: How do you how do you help the person kind of find themselves? Well, we have to start by creating this owner's manual, as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to work on a sophisticated piece of machinery like a car or a computer, you'd consult the owner's manual first to find out, well, what was this machine designed to do? What does it do best? What does it take to get it to do that? Um, what other pieces of equipment does it need around it to be most effective? And, of course, the warning labels, whatever you do, don't do this with this piece of equipment. That's essentially what we create for a person. And the process is, is interesting. It's not a test or personality inventory, it's an interview. Uh, It's a little bit akin to a coach looking at game film from an athlete's performance in a sport and looking at the different uh, uh, exercises that he's doing in these different clips. And if the coach knows what they're doing, they start to see little idiosyncrasies about how this person does whatever they do. In our case, we go back in your life and we ask you, to come up with uh, activities that you've done that you've enjoyed doing and done well. Remember enjoyment is the telltale sign that your giftedness is involved. And these are often very simple and mundane things even like I learned to ride a bike or my brother and I built a treehouse in the backyard when I was seven or I took a you know, history exam in eighth grade. and. I just really got into this thing and this project, and now that's a strange person.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that takes all kinds of make a world, but uh, and I get the person then to tell me, okay, how did you go about doing this? Give me all the rich detail, and and it's that detail, and you get about eight stories. You've got a lot of data now to analyze, and you discover that there's actually all these dots that connect among the stories, and they form a pattern of behavior that this person comes back to again and again and again. And that pattern is very predictive in terms of career success and satisfaction. So armed with that owner's manual, I'm then in a a position to say, okay, if this is what you're wired to do, if this is what you're born to do, where out here in the wide world of work are they paying people to do what you instinctively and naturally do and frankly you're going to do anyway? Why not get paid to do that, Mm -hmm. if possible? And that begins to suggest options that they can go begin to explore. And, and so, um,
1: so, so I take it this is what happened with you as well—that someone sat down and took exactly. you through this kind of a process. And yes, and and what did you discover about yourself? I mean,
2: where where what was your what did your giftedness turn out to be? I am what we call an impactor, which means I want to collide with people and make some kind of an impression, or make some kind of a difference, send them off in a whole different direction. You know, if you think of a baseball bat colliding with a baseball and knocking it out of the park. Mm -hmm. That's what I love to do. Mm -hmm. Like, people never forget, oh, my gosh, you know, I remember when Bill said this or did this or wrote this or whatever. And I've been doing that my whole life through whether it's uh, getting up in front of people or writing books or earlier years wrote music and so forth, Um, this process uh, that I've been using is a much more sophisticated way, almost a higher level, to make a huge impact in somebody's life, because when you show them this stuff, it can literally, you know, transform the direction of their life. Hmm. And I've seen that over and over and over. I I estimate in the last 20 years that I've been doing this, uh, I personally worked with about 2,000 people. And I could tell you story after story of people who, once they kind of figured out what that giftedness was and started to make choices on the basis of it, it's amazing. Opportunities start to open up that they wouldn't have thought about or considered, and of course I know that God's at work behind the scenes because he wants you to get your giftedness in play. Mm You know, we go back to Genesis 1, the very first words that God said to human beings after he created them were, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and rule over it. Mm-hmm. God wants to make this world flourish. Uh, he wants to bring life to it. And the means that he's given us to make the world flourish is through the gifts that he's given us. And everybody adds value a little differently. Some people are gifted to the task of getting ore out of a, a, a mountain and turn it into metal. Somebody else is really gifted to the task of. of shaping and designing that metal into an automobile. Somebody else is gifted the task of laying out the highway it's going to run on. Somebody else is gifted the task of getting the oil out of the ground and turning it into gasoline to drive it. Somebody else is gifted to the task of financing that, to, to educating the, all the workers, to uh, taking care of their bodies when they get sick, um, and to attend to their spiritual needs so that they, they really connect with God. So God's given all these different gifts to us. So that we would cause the the world and its people to flourish, so God wants us to discover our gifts and get into paths that are fruitful for
1: us. So um, you said that you are an impactor. What are some of the other categories of giftedness that we can be thinking about?
2: Well, in one sense, there's there's as many kinds of giftedness as there are human beings in the world. Mm. We we serve an infinite God, and I like to say that um, God is what uh, uh, giftedness is. What I call incarnational truth. You know, my view is that when God designs a human being, he takes some dimension of himself that he does in an infinite way, and he fashions a human being to do that exact same thing only in a finite way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a mystery to me, but for some reason we serve this God who delights in seeing himself in human form Mm -hmm. so that when somebody does that thing that he's put in them to do... He, he delights in that because he sees a little picture of himself, and he's the only person anywhere that's worthy of his own delight.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so in that sense, you know, theoretically, God could design an infinite number of human beings. But just to give you some examples, some people, they don't want to make an impact. They want to build things and develop things. Uh, uh, somebody else wants to understand something to a very deep level. Uh, somebody else, it, it, it's all about gaining response from people and influencing their behavior. Uh, then you have people that uh, they, they can see potential and then exploit that potential. They often end up as entrepreneurs. Um, you have people that love to plan and produce, often turn into great administrators because they can get the logistics and the operations functioning. And then you have uh, the creative types we, we tend to call realize the concept. You know, they can they can get a vision in their mind and then bring it about, perhaps through a, uh, a song or a movie or, you know, some other finished product. And it's just it, – it's amazing to see people wake up to this unique thing that they have and how they go about doing it. Um, I've never seen anybody break into tears over the results of their Myers-Briggs test, okay? <laughs> but it's not unusual for people when, when when I finally sort of confront them with the, the analysis and here's what it really shows about you. They've lived that experience their whole life. But to have it kind of named mm-hmm. and celebrated, for many people it literally reforms their their understanding of themselves in a very positive way. And it, and it gives them a, a fresh
1: way to focus on what it is that they could and should be doing. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So so um, so here I am. It, it, it's, now the next question that I guess is a natural one goes, might go something like this. So um, does everybody have to go through this kind of inventory to figure out
2: their giftedness, or are there ways that you can kind of get the ball rolling? Well, I've often thought about that because a thousand years ago, you know, how did people learn about their giftedness? You know, I believe that before the fall, uh, here's how it might have worked. Um, you observe me doing something that's right out of my gift, and you recognize that, and you say to me, "Bill, that was pretty amazing what you just did. Do you did you see the value of that?" And I go, "Wow, I hadn't noticed, but thanks for pointing that out." And and you look like you really enjoyed it. Your heart was in it. I go, yeah, that, that that's true. My heart really was in it. And then either either you or I are, are in a position to say, isn't it a wonderful thing that God made me that way? Hmm. And with enough feedback like that from people around us, we would each start to wake up to the thing that we offer and have it celebrated. Even after the fall. I believe that the first way and the most common way that people discover their gifts is they get feedback from other people and the environment. And of course, much of that feedback is from parents, siblings, teachers, peers. And that's okay to a point, except that being fallen human beings, oftentimes that feedback gets couched in negative terms. And I can name the very thing that's true about you in terms of your gift, put a negative label on it, you know, like perfectionist, Mm -hmm. you know, anal retentive. Mm -hmm. I mean – I mean, Not exactly compliments. No, but there is a kind of person who wants to get things right. Right, exactly, and pays attention to details because details oftentimes do matter. And so they kind of live with this sense of shame because they cannot not do that thing, but then they wonder, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so and I take it that the other thing that that's involved in thinking about giftedness is thinking about uh, the varieties of ways in which people can mix and match, so that um, there's not only the giftedness that you have, but when you're in a work environment, you're working alongside other people as well who who almost certainly don't share the exact talents that you have but who you need to mesh together with in order to make it work so that's a whole,
2: well kind that's of another a, dimension of the equation well that's the genius of the uh, corporation mm-hmm. and and of, of frankly community in general and it goes right back to the New Testament we need all the gifts we need all the gifts and uh, and it, it flows out through society as well. It takes all kinds of make-a-world. There's all kinds of different work that needs to be done. And when you put those gifts together, the, the, uh, the whole is much greater than just the sum of the parts. And you see that in corporations that do amazing things like build these jet airplanes or an iPad or, you know, whatever. Um,
0: this episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast.
2: Yes, giftedness is, is profoundly powerful when you organize it well and deploy it well. And, and, and so that giftedness uh, that makes.
1: Organizations work really it has a, a whole other skill, That's yeah, correct. because because it and, you know I've often heard CEOs say that besides representing the company, that one of their major responsibilities is to make sure people are in the right chairs. Right. I've often heard that figure a lot, yeah. And and what you're trying to say is is that you're you're meshing together a variety of skills in a way that works effectively and efficiently
2: for whoever it is that you're uh, you're working for. Yeah, and so. Some of my clients have been teams and organizations to help them figure that out. Yeah, that's interesting.
1: Well, uh, let me let me go to another question that that uh, that kind of sh- strikes me as we talk, and that is, well, it's all nice and good to to be able to walk into an office and ask someone to help me find my giftedness, but that seems to be aimed at a certain kind of person in a certain kind of society who has a certain kind of, uh, of freedom and opportunity to do something. What about you know the average guy out there, and 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 particularly the people who don't live in a world as full of choice as uh, some societies
2: are have. Yeah, I get asked that question a lot, and I think it's basically the question: Bill, is giftedness just a luxury? And my answer is: Oh no, it's not a luxury. It's a reality. In other words, this is built into the nature of what it means to be a human being. The giftedness is there regardless of whether the environment favors its expression or not. So take the the rice farmer in North Korea. You know, that person has had no education, probably. Um, They're working a fairly menial job. They may be starving. They still have a giftedness. They still have a giftedness. It's in there. Nobody's bothered to kind of check out what it is. But what's fascinating is that giftedness is what we call irrepressible, which means you can't You can't keep it down. It's like in a swimming pool with a bunch of ping-pong balls, you know, you you can try to keep them underwater, but sooner or later they're going to pop up. Mm -hmm. And giftedness is like that. And even in oppressive situations, giftedness will out itself. And so, you know, I think about, uh, you know, tribes out in the jungle or nomadic uh, groups in the desert or whatever, you know, over time people start to realize, you know, this person's exceptionally good at farming. Like, their, their crops always seem to yield more. And meanwhile, this person over here is great at telling stories. And this lady over here is fantastic in, in cooking. You know, and this person here seems to have a knack for, for you know, s- helping you process the questions you're asking and just whys and, you know. And, and so people slowly but surely sort of figure out what some of people's gifts are. Um, now, having said that, I'd also point out that in our, in our uh, Declaration of Independence, the, uh, the founders, uh, they said that there are three inalienable rights, which means they're rights given by the Creator. You can't just do away with them. And they are obviously um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what they meant by the pursuit of happiness was to, to do life, to pursue life in the paths that you felt God was leading you to do. Mm-hmm. And it's inherent in order to pursue that, you have to have freedom. And you will notice around the world through throughout history where people have been given freedom to educate and then to exercise their gifts, you have flourishing. Where those uh, freedoms are not present, you tend to end up with automatons and people that in many ways are becoming less human yeah less humane environment really absolutely yeah and so uh you know not to get political about it but I, I I you know very much believe that that wherever we can in this world we ought to be praying for and we ought to be working for you know people's people's freedom I guess one other factor on this Daryl is until about 75 years ago, there wasn't really a need in the world to figure out people's giftedness. Because prior to that, virtually all the work of the world was done on farms and factories. And in those economies, one strong back is as good as another. You can just plug and play people. But with the rise of knowledge work, you now discover that everybody adds value differently. And knowledge work is great because it accesses more of our personhood. Um, and... and it, it gives more expression to, or possibilities for expression of, of that giftedness. Now we're still, as I say, only 75 years into what amounts to a grand experiment. We still don't know very much about how to educate knowledge workers, how to position them for effectiveness, uh, how to uh, uh, organize them and manage them, how to incentive them. Um, we've just had endless experiments trying to figure this out as we go. And uh, I think we're making a little bit of progress, but it's it's still very early in that in that transition. But it's profound to think that the nature of work fundamentally changed back there, and it, and the locus of work moved from the land to the mind. And uh, and that that affects the giftedness piece because we really have to think about. Well, how do you add value? Mm-hmm. So you've got – I mean,
1: another way to, to articulate this, I'd be interested to hear your reaction to this, is to say, you know, you had kind of your core ag- agriculture and, and survival um, mm-hmm. skills, kind of the core things of life that people used to do, or what we would perhaps refer to today technically as manufacturing kinds of right. jobs and that kind of thing. Now you have – whole other areas. You said knowledge work, but I immediately leapt to there are a whole group of services that people provide that, that aren't manufacturing. Right. They aren't knowledge work, okay, but they're but there's service work. There that's that's different. There's the whole realm and certainly this has become big in our time, um, the whole realm of, of entertainment uh, that where a lot of people reside and where where the arts tend to get expressed, for example. Uh, arts aren't Technically speaking, manufacturing—they're right. not services in one sense—and uh, so, uh, so part of what I think you're suggesting is is that when you move from kind of a basic subsistence level of life, with where you either are growing things or designing things, manufacturing things, to all these other characteristics and possibilities
2: you open up the field for for how giftedness can express itself absolutely and this all all goes back to genesis 1 god wants the world to flourish you know the world on its own just gives us natural resources humans have to do something to transform those resources into something uh, valuable but it's a big world and Every day, we start to see just how much more God has built into the potential of this world to make it flourish. You actually saw that at the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis, what is it, 9? 11. 11. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's back there. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, God says when these people build this tower, which is a fairly sophisticated project, um, you know, the, at this rate, there's nothing these people aren't going to be able to do. And he wasn't ready for them to do all that you know he had in mind, and so he confuses the languages and spreads them abroad. Ironically, what we're sort of seeing nowadays with this global economy is people working back together again, you know, even internationally, and once again, you, you see these these amazing sort of results and products out of that, and different kinds of work, and uh, it it. To me, it, it, uh, it makes me think a lot about what would happen if, as people did their work, they brought God back into their work. It wasn't just on the human strength, as impressive as that can be, but the whole way they did their work was directed toward this God who himself is a worker and, and, and has given them this work because, in fact, he wants the world to flourish. It would, it would transform people's mindset. About what they're doing. So this this brings in the faith and work
1: dimension that ties into giftedness Big time. pretty effectively. And and the interesting thing about that, it seems to me, is is that I think when you, you talk to most people about faith and work, they say, "Okay, we're talking about uh, how I can be." A Christian at work, or how I can do evangelism exactly. at work. They think of it in terms of it's a platform. mission, yeah. But really, you're talking about something much more basic, in some ways profound, in terms of the way people go about actually seeing their work as their vocation. We tend to think of. We tend to think of ministry and vocation as happening only in the church, in the church with the pastor, or in the Sunday school class, or in children's church, or with the choir. Okay, that's where I do ministry. Correct. So, ministry's in the in the, confined to these four walls. Meanwhile, the the bulk of my week, <laughs> okay, is, is kind of point? irrelevant. Correct. You know, and. Uh, or some people, well, I go and work so I can take care of my family and earn the money that I want to earn, and it ends up being directed either towards oneself or towards the things that I really care about. Right. Um, that's another way to think about it. But you're really talking about something completely different, something far more, as I said, profound. Why don't you talk about what,
2: the di- what that difference is? Well, a lot of it has to do with God cares about the work itself the work itself. Like if your job, uh, you know, Dorothy Sayer says, if your job is to, is to make shoes, then you need to make the best shoes you can possibly make and do it to the glory of God. And, and, and really what God's interested there is not just whether you're a good person. It's like, well, how good are the shoes? Because that's indeed what the work is fundamentally about. Mm-hmm. Have you added value to this world to in some way in your little corner? Whatever God's put under your control, have you made that more life-giving? Ha- have you made it flourish? Uh, have, you, have you frankly treated it as though God himself were the steward over it because in fact he's put you in responsibility over that little piece of the world? Um, it, it changes then sort of the, the spirit with which you do your work. And not just about you know you and your needs and so forth, but it's it's about the work itself. So, uh,
1: and, and we're back into Genesis one again, of course, uh, where the. Exhortation. I call this the creation mandate: mm-hmm. is to is to be fruitful and multiply and manage the earth well. Or sometimes the metaphor is used. I think it's a good one of managing the garden. You know, you, God placed us in a garden. It's the picture of Genesis one and two. He He placed us there as as a. As part of the creation, to manage and to manage well, that management involves not only how we relate to the material world that God has placed us in, but also how we relate to each other alongside each other. And so, the the core calling of a human being is to service uh, the creation and service people within the creation well. Right. I can do that in all kinds of
2: places in all kinds of ways. That's right. And and I can't stress. I mean, I'm here. I'm preaching to the choir. Right, I mean, right, we talk right. about this stuff all the time. Right. But I can't stress enough for our audience how widespread is the view that work is kind of a curse, or at best, a necessary evil, um, and that the real work of God takes place within the within a church context. And uh, I was on a on a cohort for a university uh, online talking about giftedness. And uh, I remember there was this woman from somewhere in Africa. And uh, at, at, at the question and answer time, she said, now, Mr. Hendricks, let me see if I follow you here. I thought I heard you say that I could exercise my spiritual gifts outside the church. And I said, well, yes, that's in, a, in essence, you know, what I said. <laughs> and there was a pause and she said, hmm. I've never thought of that before. I'll have to reflect on that. Mm-hmm. And I just realized in that moment that she had just had this assumption about the nature of work and the nature of you know, church work, and the two weren't to be confused. And it, it's, it's like uh, it's as if God you know, has put all this grace into, into us through his gifts, but we, we stay in the toolbox. We don't get out there and use it. It's like we're keeping all the goodies for ourselves and our churches, and meanwhile, there's a world that's starving for uh, people who who have a real purpose in life, and are also committed to doing the best work they know how to do.
1: You know, the interesting thing about this is full of ironies because uh, when you do that, you create a divided world. You create a divided self. Um, you also, I think. Um, Create, create a world in which the life, relevant life, is confined to this sacred space that we've created, and we've got this secular world out here. And actually what we've done, this is where the irony is, what we've done is we have created the world that a secularist wants us to create in, in the sense of there's the everyday world out here that's not sacred. And then there's this sacred space which everyone can create in their own way and right. and, and let's keep it let's keep it <laughs> tight and sacred, you know, <laughs> and separate. <laughs> That's right, and separate. And and yet I, I think what scripture is calling for us to say is to say everywhere where God has his sacred people become sacred space. And and they have the opportunity to live in a in a way that reflects uh, the way God made them. Uh, his giftedness, His presence, um, and His sense of uh, of equipping us uh, to, to serve one another and to work well together. Uh, granted, this has all been tainted by what happens in the fall, but still, in terms of the design and the intent, that's the way things are supposed to be seen. So that when we move into our jobs and we do... What God has called us to do – I often use this illustration a lot. I said, you know, think about what it takes for you to have your Wheaties in the morning. Yeah. All the steps of what it takes. And
2: really – All the different
1: people. All the different people. And I mean, and if you really think that through, you realize this is happening at all kinds of levels. Correct. I mean, it's, it's from the person who grows the grain – to the box that it goes in to all the, the wrapper transportation. within the, yeah that's a whole another level the transportation all the what financing it, what it took for the truck to be able to go from place Oil a and to gas, place b transportation yeah, exactly the making of the roads i mean it's i mean, <laughs> it's, I mean it can the edu- the education of the workers
2: exactly the right the medical care for the workers what it
1: what it takes to get that wheeze, that little box of wees in that bowl
2: in front of you pretty profound Myriads of people, myriads of skills. Um, well, and, and, and I was in New York last week, so there's a city of – what is New York now? Ten million people? Uh, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's millions of people. Right, right. And every day, food gets to those people. Yeah. And I just think that is an amazing thing that that many people in such close you know, proximity, their basic needs are met. The water, the food, you know, the transport – well, transportation, let's not get
1: there.
2: <laughs> but, you know, when 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 we Christians tend to read our Bibles, it's almost like we put a set of glasses on that limit us to seeing and interpreting so many of the texts within this really narrow context. So, for instance, if you go to the New Testament and Paul says something like, you know, there, therefore be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. We tend to think, well, that means somebody in church I do that with. And we don't tend to think, no, that also includes the coworker that you're next to at work, mm-hmm. the customer, you know, that is hacked off um, or, or it hasn't paid or whatever. I mean, we, 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 we spiritualize these passages and therefore narrow them instead of saying, oh, no. This is for all of our life. We we take that into all of our life.
1: Now there are a series of passages that drop in my head when you say this. I mean, mm-hmm. Gal, there's a passage in Galatians six which says, "Do good to all, especially to those of the faith." Or, <laughs> I'm going to have some fun with the Good Samaritan. Jesus didn't tell the Good Samaritan story and say, "Well, first check out and see if they're a member of your local church, and then help them." You right. know, he said, "Go and be a neighbor." Uh, that right. that kind of thing. And in telling the story. About the Samaritan, he's also making the opposite, an opposite point or another point, and that is, and neighbors may come in surprising packages and packages that may surprise you. Uh, in (laughs) In fact, when he describes the Samaritan as a good neighbor and he asks the lawyer who he's telling the parable to, you know, who proved to be the neighbor to the one who fell among the thieves, the guy. Is so traumatized by the example, he doesn't say, you know, the some Samaritan, you know, he he says the one who showed mercy, he can't even (laughs) say it. So, uh, so there, there's this idea of of how we serve other people made in the image of God in a caring that extends, you know, without. Boundaries in such a way that we show who we are. The third passage is in my head is a very famous passage. It's the passage in Jeremiah where the call is um, to exiles, Jewish exiles who are in Babylon, not All exactly right. the most friendly and and uh, spiritual place in the history of mankind. And, and the exhortation is serve the city, All right? Um, seek the peace of seek, the city. seek the peace of the city, and so and so they're told to live. Their everyday lives in such a way that their life is a testimony to uh, the power, presence, and effectiveness, and goodness, and grace, and kindness of God.
2: And praise God, here and there, uh, and I'd say on an increasing basis, uh, but it's slow, you will see individuals who are in positions of leadership in companies and businesses and so forth. Who are really catching that vision, and they're they're literally creating their their uh, business into a model of how you do that in very practical ways, whether whether it's by um, uh, you know how they how they grow food, you know, in a real green way, and and uh, this is happening a lot overseas where. Uh, uh, through microloans and so forth, you get a group of people, and they they need they need work, mm-hmm. and and you bring them together. You provide some means, and you start to see the giftedness show up, and so you build up that business into something that then is a resource for the community, and uh, it, it's exciting to me to see uh, what have traditionally been called lay people, uh, you know, not the paid professionals, but people in everyday work catch a vision. For how they could use the the systems that God has put under their control to actually bring that flourishing about through the work.
1: It's interesting the the managers and businesses who get this, uh, who come out of a Christian background and think about how do I how do I make my work you know my vocation? How do I see it as ministry? Will say things to me like. I view the people that I manage as my flock. All right. You know, they'll 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 take what is traditionally church language and church attitudes and church pictures of shepherding and caring and protecting and providing, all those kinds of things, and they'll move it over into their job and they'll say, That's how I view my people. I don't you know, I don't view my people as chess people pieces to move around on a board in order right. that – Commodities. Yeah, commodities. But I, but I really am thinking about how to care and develop them as people as they do what they do and interact with them in such a way that it's effective.
2: Yeah. I, I believe every manager is in a position to literally affect the spiritual uh, – the soul, I would say, of people that work for them. And you think, well, how can they do that? Because how you set up the work and how you oversee the work – And how you reward the work, all of that affects the person's outlook on life. And if they hate their work, they take that home and it poisons the whole home. Whereas if you set up the work to be, again, life-giving, so they feel like, oh, I belong here, I can express the best of who I am, I can make a contribution, well, now their work means something. They take that home and it permeates their whole community. So, so there's a sense in which there's uh, there's a, also a soul of the corporation that yeah, gets created right. as a result. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, a, a company can affect its community. Frankly, it can affect a whole region. It can affect a whole nation. Yeah. And so I, I,
1: this 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 area has. Fascinated me ever since I've gotten into it, and 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 the myriads of ways in which it works. But the core thing is is when people understand that what they do matters. And most jobs that people have do matter in one way or another. They do contribute to the cycle. They allow me to eat my wheaties, <laughs> you know, every day. I get my food every day, or you know, or the clothes on my back, or whatever. Um, they do perform a real service. And when people see that contribution, and they're doing it. Out of a skill set that God's been giving them, then their life is a more life makes way. sense. That's right, life makes sense. So we thank you for coming in and being a part Thanks. of this and discussing for having ourselves. me. Glad to do it, and we're glad you could be with us on the table. And we look forward to seeing you back again with us soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu/the table. Dallas Theological Seminary, teach truth, love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.